The following audio message by Dudley Hall is presented by Kerygma Ventures. More information is available at www.kerygmaventures.com. Well, glory. This is Dudley. It's great to be back with you again this month. I really look forward to uh, our visits together as we get into the Word together and talk about things theological and uh, practical. Theological is practical. Hey, as always, got some things coming up that you really need to participate in. First of all, the uh, series that I did in January on the book of First Peter, which I think is the most relevant maybe book in the New Testament for us right now where we're living, Living Holy in a Hostile Culture. It's a series of uh, seven or eight studies in the book of First uh, Peter about such things as suffering and praying and a bunch of other stuff. How to live in a hostile culture. How we live as new creations in a world that has not been fully redeemed yet. So uh, get those. You get them. You can get video, audio, get them. Another thing coming up is the Father-Son Weekend. I mean, we're, it's, it's right on us. But if you, every, every son deserves for a father or a group of fathers to affirm them as men. So many young men and older men still don't know. They still don't believe that they're men. They don't even know what a man is. They don't know what masculinity is. It's been confusing in our culture. So this is so good for fathers and sons. Boys need to be at least 14. Fathers, of course, can be whatever age they are. Uh, and then in July, our big thing for our leadership expedition, it's for young men 16 to 25, every serious young man needs to come through this because it's about making decisions, being a leader, knowing what your responsibilities and privileges are in your generation. You can go online at leadershipexpedition.org and look at a video about it. You can call the office, we'll send you a brochure, whatever. But if you are a young man in that age bracket, or if you know someone Please help us find the right guys. They will never be sorry, and you will have made a great uh, contribution, great investment in the future. And then in October, we have our Beyond Happiness Retreat. This is about marriage. It's for couples. Last year, we had several couples who came who were just engaged, preparing for marriage. Others who have come. So it's not just for marriages in trouble, though it certainly would fit for marriages in trouble. But it's for any marriage to learn that your marriage was not designed to make you happy. Uh, it, it is designed to uh, let you participate in the life that God has on this earth. And it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. It's good for everybody. It's, it goes way beyond a lot of the techniques that many of us have tried to learn through the years going to marriage conferences and whatever. So I, I recommend highly the, the events coming up and you could be a part of those. Uh, for those of you who uh, invest with us financially, I want to thank you. Thank you so much for caring and, and knowing that we play a part on the team and you play a part on the team. We believe the message we carry and the expressions of it and the different things we do is uh, life-changing. It's eternal. It's, uh, it's worth whatever investment you could get. And so I wanted to say thank you for those of you who, who give to us. If you have not been giving, 
I want to invite you to. I want to urge you to. Uh, you can uh, go online and you can give a monthly basis. You can give a one-time gift. You can put us in your will, you know, whatever you want to do. But it, it is our privilege to share with those who share with us. And I think the message that you're getting is worthy of, uh, of investing in. And so we make no bones about it. We need you. You're part of the team. I, I don't have the time to do all that I do and then go raise money too. So uh, you get to, to help in that arena and we appreciate it so, so very much. Hey, I want to talk to you today out of uh, first, first Corinthians 10. So uh, if you got a copy of the scripture, get it, go there. I don't know how, how people you do everything today. You got your phone, your computer, your Bible, Maybe you got your memory. That's good. First Corinthians 10. Uh, Paul writing to the church at Corinth. And he says this. I'm, I'm going to read it to you and then, then we'll get into it. Okay, you ready? Oh, by the way, I'm, I'm, this time I'm using the New Living Translation. Got this translation uh, recently. Uh, trying to make friends with it. And uh, it, it is really uh, good to read particularly out loud. So uh, I'm going to read it to you. I don't want you to forget, dear brothers and sisters, about our ancestors in the wilderness long ago. All of them were guided by a cloud that moved ahead of them, and all of them walked through the sea on dry ground. In the cloud and in the sea, all of them were baptized as followers of Moses. All of them ate the same, the same spiritual food, all of them drank the same spiritual water. For they drank from the spiritual rock that traveled with them, and that rock was Christ. Yet God was not pleased with most of them, and their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. These things happened as a warning to us that we should not crave evil things as they did, or worship idols as some of them did. As the scripture says, the people celebrated with feasting and drinking, and they indulged in pagan revelry. And we must not engage in sexual immorality, as some of them did, causing 23,000 of them to die in one day. Nor should we put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and then died from snake bites. And don't grumble, as some of them did, and they were destroyed by the angel of death. These things happened to them as examples for us. They were written down to warn us who live at the end of the age. Now, it, it would be common for us to interpret that text as, okay, this happened to Israel in the Old Testament and we can learn from their failures and so there's some things we ought to learn here, some things you ought not to do because it's really costly. Don't do this idolatry thing. Don't do the immorality thing. Don't grumble. Snake gets snake bit. You die. Bad things happen when you do those. Let's eliminate those from our life. Well, that's true. But that's a very shallow uh, an inadequate interpretation of all that Paul is trying to convey here. There's much, much more. 
uh, it reminds me that that way of going about interpreting scripture reminds me of the story that's told true or not I don't know but uh, the the single mom had three kids who were incorrigible and uh, filthy mouths uh, totally undisciplined she couldn't get a handle on them she marries remarries and uh, she marries a former marine and uh, he he takes no no bluff off of them so they come to the breakfast table and he asks the the oldest one what would you like for breakfast and the boy just very nonchalantly says i'll have some of those blankety blank cornflakes using profanity well the man just backhands him across the table and he winds up in the corner looks at the second amused little boy and says what would you like he said well i was I was thinking about having some of those blankety-blank cornflakes. Well, he backhanded him. So he looked at the third little boy and said, what do you want for breakfast? He said, I'm not sure, but I am sure I don't want any of those blankety-blank cornflakes. I think sometimes that's how we go about reading scripture. We read it in some kind of flat interpretation like, all the Bible was written at the, at one time and it's all written to us. And I'm just to go and gather up some of the texts that tell me how to live and some things to avoid and how, how some things to do. And that will make life better or it'll please God or whatever. And that's, uh, that's not a, that's not an adequate way of reading scripture. That, that's not a way to read scripture and to engage the word of God in a way that's going to make you want to come back so that you're passionate about getting into the story and into the word. So I want us to talk about it in a bigger way. Paul was not only saying there's some things that anyone could learn from reading the story and some things you need to avoid. What he's saying is that we as Christians, we as a part of the new creation, are actually reliving the same story of Israel. That the story of Israel becomes our story. So I want to talk about that a little bit. Because you see, Paul was, uh, he was presenting a, a life that was different from any other life that had ever been presented. Even the Jews lived by the Torah the Torah is instruction. It, it's, a, it's a covenant. It, it tells you uh, who, who God is briefly and then says, these are the things you're to do. These are the things you're not to do. If you do these, you get blessed. If you don't do these, you're cursed. Basically, this is, this is it. So there wasn't a lot of uh, musing, uh, thinking about, discussing, uh, contemplating. Uh, there wasn't a lot of theologizing that went on with the Jews. And yet Paul introduces a, a life that makes theologians out of us all. Now, now don't, don't run to the wrong conclusion. You say, I'm no theologian. I'm just an ordinary person trying to, trying to live for Jesus. Okay. But you're a theologian because a theologian is one 
who is thinking about, musing about, asking questions about, getting to know who God is, what God has done, and what are the ramifications of that. And your ethics, your morals, the way you act, come out of what you believe about who God is and what he's doing. Last month, we dealt with the, the one God, one people, one story thing. We're building on that th- this time. So, so what Paul is saying is that the Corinthian, excuse me, that the, uh, that the Old Testament saints, the, the Israelites, were, they had a journey. There, there was a, a, a sequence to what happened in their life and we are in a, a parallel journey, if you will, and uh, we are living out in its fullest form the story that they lived in a shallow and a material form. So Paul come, comes to the conclusion that as you as you understand who God is, what God has done, and what the ramifications are, then you know how to live. And, and, and so you're, you don't have to have a bunch of rules and you don't have to have a bunch of regulations. I think it is true that we tend to, we, we'd rather have rules than, than life. We'd rather, we'd rather be legalists than theologians. Now, I will tell you this, if you choose not to be a theologian, the way we're defining it, you will be a legalist yeah, because you, you'll demand rules and regulations and standards and all of that instead of living by the, the vibrancy of the life of Christ. So, so let's talk about how Paul wrote his part of the New Testament and what, what he was trying to get across. If you ask the average person, what, what's the center of what Paul taught us? They might say, well, it's atonement, or it's the cross, or it's the gospel. Well, of course, that's that's at the center of it. But I, sh- I should ask the question this way. What was Paul's center of what God was trying to accomplish? And I think you'll find that Paul is about God producing a what we now know as the church, a, a people on earth who enjoy him, who partner with him, and who worship and work fully and freely with him, doing his assignment to mankind on the earth. Someone might say, well, Paul was all about salvation in Christ and sanctification, and he was about you know us living a life that when we die, we go to heaven. Well, That's included. When we die, we do go to heaven. But that's not the center of what Paul's talking about. We have bought into that truncated view of the gospel, that that's what life's about. And therefore, we have left the world unsubdued. We have have lost the joy of living in this world because we're so focused on, on when we die, we leave this place, get rid of it, and go on to some other place. The focus of Paul's theology is what God has done affects your life on this earth as well as what happens afterward. 
but a lot of good things happen on the earth. So he, he tells the story from creation to recreation, from God's creating the, the universe and putting Adam and Eve as his first people there. And these people of, of, of God, Adam and Eve, are going to reproduce and they're, they're going to enjoy God, worship God, work with God, partner with God. <clears throat> and they were going to live under God and over creation. They were going to, to work with him in developing this created world. But sin came into the mix and things be, began to go awry. And so chaos came in the middle of cosmos and this all kinds of stuff happened. But that did not stop God's plan. And we see glimpses of it, as we mentioned last month. In Noah, God starting over. Abraham, God said, with a seed, I'll fix the problem. Israel, God calls his people out. These are his people now. It's not Adam and Eve anymore. It's the people of Israel that he's chosen to be his image bearers, if you will. And, of course, Israel fails in their whole thing. And so finally, we have Jesus coming as the final Adam. And in his resurrection, when he's resurrected from the, day, from, the, from the dead, a new creation is born. It's launched. Because now there's a new race. There's a new people, Christ and his people. There's a, a new purpose. All of this happens at the resurrection. And that is so important to what Paul is teaching us about how to think, how to bring our minds in line with the truth. There's just a lot in the scripture about that. Uh, it, it, it's, uh, well, think about, oh, Philippians to let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not think being equal with God was something to be grasped, but made himself of no reputation, took upon himself the form of a servant, being found in the fashion of man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the death, even the death of the cross, wherefore God has highly exalted him. Let this mind be in you. It's about thinking differently. It's not just about doing right things and avoiding bad things. It's about thinking about the big picture. Colossians 3, set your mind on things above where Christ sits at the right hand of the Father and your life is hidden with Christ and God. Uh, Romans 12, uh, I beseech you brothers by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable God, which is your reasonable service. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, there was a time I thought that meant, you know, you don't look at bad magazines and you don't watch bad TV programs and you don't lust and you don't, you're not greedy, you know, you, you, set, you know, set your mind, right, set your mind on religious things. That's not what he's saying. He said, I, I want you to see a worldview. I want you to see how you interpret history. I want you to understand the story from first to last. And I want you to understand where you fit into that story and, and where you fit in that story will determine how you live right now. It'll determine how you handle the past. It'll determine how you handle the present. It'll determine how you hope for the future. So he's saying our, our mind has to be uh, renewed. In 1 Corinthians 2, Paul talks about 
The wisdom that we have is not a wisdom of the world, but there is a wisdom, he said. It's the wisdom of God that was revealed by the Spirit so that we don't think like natural men, but we actually think the thoughts of God, which is a phenomenal thought, isn't it? So so what Paul is doing as he is trying to, to show us how to practically live out the Christian life is he's saying, you got to get your mind around this story because you're in the story and you don't know what part to play unless you know what act of the play it's in. You can't just jump up on stage and blurt out your lines when it's not your time. But it is our time and here's where the story is. Therefore, here's how you are to act. So that that is... Pauline theology. And he's he's inviting us all, in fact, requiring us all to become theologians ourselves. We need to think about who God is. What's he done? What does that mean for where I am? Where are we in this story? The book, uh, the whole book of Romans is, could could be Paul telling the story again as he starts with the book of Romans, I'm assuming that you know a little bit or maybe a lot about the book of Romans, but uh, let, let me just tell you a way to look at it. Romans, he starts the whole deal by introducing why the gospel is so important and it's the only way that men can be saved is the gospel of Jesus. And he goes into, it's, it's necessary for Jews and Gentiles. He talks about the faith of Abraham and, and how that's, that's the whole thing. It, it all comes by faith, not by works. And then and then he kind of picks up more of the story of Israel and how God led Israel out of slavery. So in chapter five, we have the story about sin came in the world through Adam, salvation came in the world through Jesus. Uh, and so, so we have the, the deliverance out of our sinful bondage. And then chapter six of Romans is kind of taking on the story of Israel going through the Red Sea. They went through the Red Sea that killed the Egyptians and it was their baptism into this death, if you will. And so he says, now we're in that story. We have been baptized into Christ. When Christ died on the cross, we died with him. When he was raised, we were raised with him. Therefore, we are to reckon ourselves dead indeed to sin, but alive unto God. And we don't yield our members as instruments of unrighteousness, but of righteousness. That's Romans 6, as it takes us through the baptism part, if you will. Baptism into Christ's death. Then Israel, after that experience, God takes them into the wilderness to Sinai, where he gives them the law. Paul moves from Romans 6, about the baptism and the death, to chapter 7, which is about the law. That's the chapter that we all like to quote and go, I'm like Paul, things I know I ought to do, I don't do, things I know I shouldn't do, things I wind up doing. Oh, wretched man that I am, with my mind I agree with God, but in the capacity of, of living it out, I can't do it. Uh, who's going to, who is going to deliver me from this cycle of sin and death and condemnation and all that. Oh, I wretched man that I am. And then the answer 
as we move into chapter eight is, thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. There's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ, uh, to those who are born of the spirit, for the God has replaced that cycle of sin and death, that promise to do better, that commitment to do better and then not. He's, re he's replaced that with the cycle of the life in the spirit. And so that's a picture of Israel coming into the promised land as God leads them. He leads them by cloud in the day, fire at night. But for us living out that story, he's leading us by his spirit. His spirit has replaced the cloud and the fire. His spirit has replaced the law or it's fulfilled the law, I should say. So now we are children of God. We, we know God as father. We call out Abba father and we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus. And so we're, we're walking in this new inheritance now. And, uh, that's, that's where we live. Now he goes on to say, we also realize that though we have been regenerated and we are new creations and God has started this new creation, a lot of creation has not yet been fully redeemed. Our bodies are still decaying. The physical universe has, has still has, has not been redeemed from all the curse that's on that. But we are God's agents taking the new creation into the old and, and confronting it and, and bringing light where there's darkness. And uh, we're like leaven working through the dough. And so, uh, so there's conflict there. So he just says, okay, Christ has shared with us his very life. He's even shared his glory, but in sharing his glory, part of his glory is suffering because he is so different. He is so out there that so much of the world is not going to live just like it didn't believe Jesus. He's out there. We carry that same life. We'll be persecuted. That's part of our glory. But what is he explaining in Romans 8? is that in this new creation, the way we live, this is very important, the way we live is we live on the basis of what God has done that has eternal consequences. For instance, Jews, the common ordinary Jew, like Mary and Martha, friends of Jesus, they believed in a resurrection remember Jesus showed up when Lazarus had died and the, and the girls were, were regretting that he had not been there, probably maybe fussing a little bit. And they said, you know, if you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. And Jesus said, he's going to live again. Well, they said, we know that. I mean, we know at the end of time he'll live again, but we're, we want him now. And Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. What's he saying? He's saying the end has come into the middle. What you believe is going to happen at the end has now moved into the middle. And since I am the resurrection of the end, I can raise people now. That's why when Jesus died and was resurrected, it was so hard for the average guy to believe it. Almost anybody could believe that there's a resurrection at the end. At the end of time, when everything's over, all the books are in, all whatever. Okay, resurrection of the righteous, 
uh, degradation of the, of the unrighteous. Yeah, we can all believe that. But when Jesus was raised from the dead, it said, whoa, the end has moved into the middle, has moved into history. And he has launched the new creation. We thought the, the new creation wasn't going to get going until the old one had passed away. And that's because we were looking through observation-wise. But Jesus was saying, yeah, the old covenant's passing away and the old system passing away and there's a new creation being inaugurated. And he was the firstborn of that new creation. And then his disciples were the kind of the next of the first fruits. And then as they spread out the next group and then finally us, finally we, we are a part of that new creation. Another way, another aspect of that is that Paul does talk about us being justified. What does it mean to be justified? Well, in the end, when all things have been done and all the books are in and all the books are ready to be checked out, okay, there's going to be a judgment. Some are going to be declared guilty of rejecting God's solution. Others are going to be, be declared righteous, innocent, as if they'd never sinned. Who are those going to be? Well, because Jesus has already been to the end, and he went as our representative, the judgment has already been made. And that judgment has been brought from the end into the middle. So that today, God can declare me justified on the basis that I trust Jesus as my righteousness. So I'm justified. The end has come into the now. And that's, that's the life and the message of of the new creation people, of the church, if you will. Paul closes out Romans uh, uh, 8 by saying, you know, there's nothing that can defeat the love of God. Uh, nothing present, nothing past, nothing in heaven, nothing on earth, no angels, no demons, life, death, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Why? Because the end, the final completion of God's love and acceptance has now has come into the now and nothing is going to be able to destroy that and that's why he's able to say who can lay a charge to god's elect who's going to indict us well if you indict us god is one who makes up the charges and and god says i, I justified you jesus is uh, who's going to condemn us jesus is the one who said i've given you my righteousness and i took your condemnation so who's going to condemn us? So he said, you can live now as if it were the end because the end has come into the middle. Does that make sense? I don't mean make you know physical sense, but does that fit? Do you understand that dynamic? It's a fabulous way of bringing our minds into understand what reality the gospel produces. And so... We are this new people who are living in a measure the, the future now. Now, there's some things for the future. There'll come a day when this body will be transformed. It'll either have, been, it'll either have died and it'll be brought from the dead 
and resurrected, renewed, or it'll be just transformed in, in the twinkling of an eye. So, and all of creation, everything that was affected by sin will be restored. There'll be the completion of the new creation. Everything will be summed up in Christ and under, under God. But we live now in the middle of, well, we, we live now on the after side of the cross and the resurrection, but on the this side of the culmination. And what we are to do now is we are to, to fulfill the destiny that God had for mankind to begin with. What was Adam and Eve's job? Go to heaven? No. He didn't create them to die just to die and go to heaven. He created them to be his partners on earth, taking his order and and working it through every aspect of life, of every aspect of, aspect of reality, so that his kingdom that's in heaven would be displayed on the earth. That was Adam and Eve's assignment. That was Israel's assignment. It was Jesus' assignment as the ultimate Adam and the ultimate Israel. And he did it. He accomplished it. And now, since he's inaugurated the new creation, he's given it to us. So he said, go into all the world. I'll go with you. Make disciples of all, all nations. Teach, teach them to observe. Teach them to think my way. Teach them to think according to reality. And, and then teach them to act according to how they're, how they're thinking. Let their theology dictate their actions. So, so go into the world and do that. And then these people who become disciples of Christ, who are now under God, can be over creation and every area of science, every area of agriculture, every area of education, all of the areas of life can have this influence of people who understand cosmos and not chaos. They, they can be a part of blessing the world instead of, of just being a part of the curse. Now, yeah, you say, well, you, that's not the kind of eschatology I grew up with. Well, I know uh, it wasn't an eschatology I grew up with either, but it never did really make sense to me. I, I hope not to you that that we're supposed to be doing good things and whatever, but we're also supposed to be hoping that things turn bad real quick so we can, we can get out of here. Well, maybe God doesn't want us out of here. Maybe we weren't just saved to go to heaven. Maybe we were saved to enjoy God, partner with him on this earth. And then when we die, we're with him and we are part of his program, his purposes forever. And so, so, yeah. Now, where I want us to go in the last few minutes here is this. Paul takes this big view and he says, now, I want you to think through your theology and I want you to apply it to your ethical decisions. It's what he does later in 1 Corinthians 10. In 1 Corinthians 10, one of the issues of that day was that they, uh, these Jews have been taught not to participate with any kind of unclean food or whatever and not to go in temples that were dedicated to idols and all that kind of stuff. Well, there were some people there who uh, 
had gotten free from that. They didn't grow up with that Jewish conscience or whatever, or they had been freed from it. And so there's a conflict there about, should you eat meat sacrificed to idols? And so Paul could have said, okay, I'm the apostle. I'm going to send you an edict down. It's going to tell you, do this, do this, do this, don't do this. And that's how you should live. That's not what he did. He said, I want you to think it through. You're theologians. Think it through. Okay, those statues, are they anything other than just wood or stone or whatever? No, they're not really gods. Uh, that meat, is there anything wrong with that meat? I mean, is it? No, it's the best meat in town. He said, okay, therefore, you're free to eat anything you want to, anytime you want to. So you're out from under the, con under the condemnation of that. But there's more to it than that, he says, because you weren't just saved to be free from all the restrictions of the law and, and all that. You were saved to benefit others. You were saved to spread the gospel. You were saved so that God's kingdom would be expressed in every area of life. Now, if you have brothers whose conscience is still keen on, I uh, can't go into a temple and I can't eat that meat. So when you, when you eat with them, their, their conscience is more important than your liberty. And your liberty is limit, limited by your love. So don't eat of it for the sake of not offending their conscience. Yeah, I think he could, could have said if he didn't, now, if you're not with anybody, nobody's there, and you want to go down to the temple and have a steak, fine. Just make sure that you're not just trying to prove your rights and your liberty. You, you're concerned about your brothers. So see, he's applying, he's applying this eternal life and, it, and its newness and its, its effectiveness to situations in life without giving you a bunch of rules. Now, to be able to do that, you you need to be in a community of people that you care about and that uh, uh, can can help you make those decisions. So he, he deals with several others in Corinthians. One is the whole idea of immorality. And uh, there were some who were, were still participating in uh, temple prostitution. And he said, no, no wait, let's, let's apply theology to that. Instead of me... Instead of me just pulling out the Ten Commandment card here and saying, that's the number seven, thou shalt not commit adultery, don't do that, and getting in an argument about fertility cults and all that. Instead of that, let's just, let's just apply who you are and what God's done to this situation. Okay, here's the story. There used to be a temple that God met with his people in. Now that temple is the body of Christ. You are that temple. Do you want to take the temple of God and make it one with a prostitute? That's crazy. That's gross. Don't do that. That's contrary to what you believe. And so he deals with it without giving any rules, any regulations, any thou shalt nots, any threats about snake bites and, uh, people dying, he's saying you apply 
you apply where you are in the story, what God has done, you apply that to your situation. Another interesting one is when they are, uh, they're debating or they're having a trouble in the community about uh, going to uh, lawsuits against each other. A situation there was they'd come to a conflict, have a business conflict, have a civil civil issue, and they would go to the, their their courts there. Well, if you look back, you'll find that the courts there were not all that full of justice. Lots of bribing and lots of injustice went on there. And so he said, why do you Christians go to a court that you know is not operating on the justice of God and present your cases there just in order to, to win? When the fact is, don't you understand that one day you'll be judging angels? So judge now. See how he's reaching into the future and bring it into the present? Since that's what you're going to be doing for eternity, since that's who you really are and that's what God has accomplished, since you will do that then, go ahead and get started now. Judge one another here. God will give you the wisdom to know how to handle these situations. So, so he's showing us how to live our lives as participants in the story if you know where in the story you are. And we are in that place in the story where we are living out the inauguration, the launching of a new creation. We're still dealing with a lot of the creation that has not yet been fully redeemed. And we are spreading the kingdom of God wherever we go and we're trying to bring blessings there. And the more we are able to do that, the, the more blessings we will see uh, in the world around us. We are changed. We change the institutions that we're a part of. We change the arenas of life that we're a part of. And of course, God has designed it so that we do that as a team, a team in unity. Now, there's a lot of talk today about unity. The idea being that we're all tired of divisiveness and in the church as well as in politics, but it seems like nobody is willing to uh, be one. We all cry out, let's all be one in Christ. And uh, one of the things I think we're missing on that is we think if we would all just sit down and we would all, you know, reason it all out. I'm not, I'm not so sure about that. We all should be willing to sit down and learn from each other and listen to each other. Yes. But, you know, if you have a hundred guys in a room and all hundred of them have a guitar and you say, okay, let's, uh, let's all get on the same tune, let's get the same pitch. And so they all start tuning with each other and, you know, one hits the string with the other. And, and so they're all trying to come up with, uh, with tuning the guitar based on sharing information with each other. If they ever came to unity, it it would take a long time. What's better is for somebody to have a tuning fork and to hit it and create that particular pitch, that sound, and then all the guitars tune to it. And when everybody's tuned to it, they're also tuned to each other. There has to be a common sound, and that sound is the gospel. 
It is the story that time is fulfilled. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus, by his coming, has inaugurated the kingdom. By his resurrection, he has launched the new creation. And we are people of that new race. That's the, that's the unifying story. When we can believe that there's one God and one people and one story, and we all tune to that, then we'll find that we're all in tune with each other. And when we do, as we do, it mocks the principalities and powers in the heavenlies because those powers are working daily trying to divide the body of Christ because they fear the power of a unified people of God. So we live in a time when we can be agents of God bringing blessing to the world. I'll close with this. Paul says that the big, the big issue in what we do now is in prayer. He says, we are rulers with Christ, and yet we don't know enough to rule. We don't know everything. So we pray, but a lot of times we don't even know what to pray for, and we don't know how to pray. He says, take heart. The Holy Spirit, not a cloud, not a piece of fire, not a rule, not Torah, the Holy Spirit will intercede for you. He not only prays for us and prays the will of God for us, he prays through us as we pray for things in the world. We pray for our children, we pray for our country, we pray for everything. As we pray, then things will change because the Holy Spirit is doing in us what God has required or asked of us. So prayer is a big issue in what we're to do today as the people of the new creation. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you so much for the privilege of doing this study. And thank you for the privilege of living out the story of God. I pray for all who have heard these words, and I pray that you would cause them to make sense, sense in their heart, in their spirit, so that they, all of us together, in a unified way, can reflect your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is Dudley Hall with Kerygma Ventures. I've enjoyed our time together. I look forward to being with you next month. Thank you for listening to this message by Dudley Hall from Kerygma Ventures. Additional copies of this resource, as well as a wide range of discipleship materials, is available from our website. You may make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Dudley Hall or Kerygma Ventures, please visit us online at www.kerygmaventures.com. That's K-E-R-Y-G-M-A-V-E-N-T-U-R-E-S dot com.